I'd like you to turn in the scriptures to John chapter 15. I'm going to read the first nine verses. And my version is slightly, slightly different to yours, possibly, simply because it's the slightly earlier um, version of the NIV, and the printer's a wee bit larger, and I haven't got my glasses. Jesus says, I am the vine, my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. So remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, whatever you ask, or ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. This is, my, this is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As my Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. Father, we ask you to open your word to us. We ask you to take the words off the page and implant them in our hearts through the work of your Holy Spirit. In the name of our Lord Jesus, amen. This passage this morning takes us a little bit further into the final hours of our Lord's pre-Calvary ministry to his disciples. We find ourselves in the very last hours of this turbulent and very tragic Thursday. And by very early on, on the Passover Friday morning, he will be arrested and he will be taken away. But now he's taking this time to be with his disciples because they are the ones who are going to be living on in the world when he is gone. Chapter 14, where we started, began with those wonderful words, let not your heart be troubled. And Jesus told his disciples that he was the way and the truth and the life, and that no one could get to the Father but by him. He also said he must leave them, but he would send someone else. He would send an advocate, a comforter, who would guide and strengthen them for the task that he was going to set them. Chapter 14 ends with those words, strange enigmatic little words, come, now let us leave. We'll look at those words in just a minute. Suffice it to say that some have read into those words something like Christ saying, come on, let's get going and advance upon the enemy. I'm not quite sure that's what he meant. It sounds to me like he's saying, well, let's get out of here. The first part of this is, is, is in verse 1, where, where Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. In other versions, he's talked about as the farmer or the husbandman, the owner of the vineyard. This is the very last of our Lord's so-called I am sayings. There are eight of them in the Gospel of John, and you'll remember some of them. I am the bread of life, I am the resurrection and the life. Earlier on in the previous chapter, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
Now he says, I am the true vine, which is strangely enough, maybe one of the most astonishing things he's ever said. We'll come to that in just a second. Why this particular analogy of the vine at this particular moment in time? Normally when he says, I am the bread of life, for example, it's within the context of a conversation that's happening right there and then, and so on. But why the vine? Some say, well, maybe it's just because they've they've had their final supper together and they've been sharing wine. So maybe that's what's brought the idea of the vine to his mind. That's possible. But I think it might be something else. Jesus says at the end of chapter 14, he says, come now, let us leave. Where's he going? Where does he want to take his disciples? Why are they leaving the upper room at this time? Well, if they do leave the room, and that's what the words mean, they, um, it's a spring evening, and uh, there are 11 of the disciples left. Judas has just left them, remember, back in chapter 13. He's left to do his business. And they're headed towards the Garden of Gethsemane, we know that. So they take the, the path that leads down to the brook Kidron, and it passes by the very edge of the, uh, the temple of Herod, the last of the temples that was ever built in Jerusalem. And I believe it says they pass that part of the temple that Jesus stops and directs the disciples to something quite unusual. At the entrance to the holy place, there were a few steps, apparently, that led down to a, an archway. And in this archway, it was covered by a linen curtain. This curtain was covered in purple and scarlet and blue flowers. And down the sides of the curtain were these wonderful gold chains that, that hung. And across the top was this quite extraordinary gold depiction of a vine. And underneath the vine were the words, the nation or the people of Israel. And the idea was that the very wealthy members of that society would make donations to the temple by having a, an artist make something out of gold, maybe some, some, some vine leaves or a bunch of grapes, and they'd go and they'd attach them to this vine that was above the archway. So by the time that Josephus is writing, he says it was so large, there were bunches of grapes made of gold that were the size and height of a man. There was this remarkable piece of gold sculpture, as it were, above the, above, the, above the doorway. And it represented the nation of Israel. Several times in the Old Testament we see this. In Psalm chapter 80, for example, the psalmist says, Return to us, O God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine. The root your right hand has planted. The sun you have raised up for yourself. Your vine is cut down. It is burnt with fire. The book of Isaiah, it says very clearly, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. So the image of the vineyard was back then, and the vine was back then, and continues today to be one of the favorite images of the Jewish people when they think of themselves as the, as the people of God. Jesus refers to this in Matthew 12, and Mark 12, in Matthew 20, and Luke 13. The nation of Israel, the vine. They didn't do very well as a vine. They had to be chastened. They had to be pruned. And many times they disappointed the Lord. And when God's own son came into the vineyard, what did they do? They killed him, as we read in Matthew 21. So now picture it. Jesus has these 11 disciples with him. And they're rather confused and anxious beneath this elaborate and decorative vine of gold and silver. 
and he says, I am the true vine. Can you imagine the reaction? Even today, the true Jewish believers find this particular saying of Christ one of the most sacrilegious and obnoxious of all of his teachers. How dare he claim to be the true vine? And for those of you who are witnessing to a Jewish friend, please don't bring up this particular part of Scripture if you can avoid it. It won't go down well at all. So we have this wonderful analogy that all of God's plan is now fulfilled in this true vine, Jesus, the true vine. And that brings us to another part we're going to look at in just a moment. We are the branches. I don't want to spend too much time now looking at the, the role of the, the father as the husbandman, the, 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 the gardener, the farmer. The reason for that is I'm going to pick up on that very much so, the relationship between Christ and his father in chapter 16 and into chapter 17. So I'm going to ask you to allow me to skim over that very briefly because I really, really, really want to get into this second important verse, which is down in verse 5, where Jesus says again, I am the vine. But this time he says, you are the branches. So there they are, standing beneath this, or looking at this, this unbelievable piece of art. And he said to them, I am the vine. He repeats that. Now he turns to them and says, but you are the branches. You're part of this with me. You're part of this. The branches is a clear reference, of course, to his disciples. And, of course, then to us. If we are members of God's family, if we are born-again Christians... Those who claim Jesus as Lord and Savior, Jesus is the vine, we are the branches. He goes on to say that, of course, a branch by itself is weak and useless. It makes wonderful burning material for a barbecue. Those of us who were brought up in areas near wine-growing country, and I was in the Cape in South Africa, we, we used to go to the wine, uh, the, the estates very often, not to get the wine so much as to get the wood made the most wonderful barbecue wood because you could light your fire at night and you could still barbecue next morning and have your breakfast on the same coals. It burned all night long. It was just wonderful because it was hard. But that's all it was good for. That's all it was good for, burning. It was use of no use for anything else. And this is what he says. We are his branches and we are of no value as branches alone if we are disconnected from the vine. A branch cannot produce its own life. It must produce its life. Its life must be drawn from the vine. It is only through our union, our union with the true vine that we can, product, we can be productive. And throughout the, the New Testament, Jesus uses similar kinds of images. So, for example, in the one in 1 Corinthians chapter 12... In the middle of that chapter, he talks about the analogy of the human body and its parts. And he says the body is the unit, though it's made up of many parts. And although its, many, its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ, for we all baptize by one spirit into one body. And he goes on to talk about how we are almost like the different parts of this body. But alone, separately, we have no value unless we are joined together in this union, this this relationship with him, any part of the body that is removed, cut off, will shrivel and die. In Ephesians chapter 5, he talks about the analogy of the bride and the bridegroom. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing 
with water through the word. Husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church. For we are members, we are members of his body. He is called the great bridegroom, and we are the bride. Once again, there is the, the, the separateness, the apartness doesn't work. It's in union that the value and the blessing comes. He goes on in chapter John chapter 10 to talk about the, uh, the sheep, the shepherd and the sheep. And you see how he talks about himself, Jesus, being the good shepherd. He says, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. So we are not, we are not the body. We're just members of the body. We're not, we're not the bridegroom. We are the bride. We are not the shepherd. We are the sheep. And we're not the vine with the branches. And when we understand this, the closer our relationship with the Lord Jesus will be. Our effectiveness depends entirely upon him. And we need to get to the place where we confess our weakness apart from him and moment by moment we need his sustenance. And the key word here is, and it's repeated three or four times in these first nine verses, it's the word that in the older versions is translated abide, in the newer versions it's translated remain. So you see in verse 4, remain or abide in me and I will remain in you. Verse 5, I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me you can do nothing. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, it will be given. And then again in verse 9, he says, remain, remain in my love. What does that word abide or remain mean? Well, it's a Greek word which is pronounced meno, M-E-N-O, which means to stay in a certain place or remain within a certain relationship, to abide, to continue, to dwell, to endure, to tarry. Interestingly enough, it's a derivation from the same word that is used in John chapter 14 and verse 2 and 3, where he talks about the whole idea that my father's house has many dwelling places. That word dwelling places comes from the same word. Places where we can remain. Places where we can abide. It means something like staying in very close fellowship with him so that his life, his will, his power can flow into us and through us without abating and without hindrance. One of the greatest writers for me in Christian history on the subject of the believer's relationship with Jesus was that wonderful Scottish pastor and theologian and missionary to South Africa, Dr. Andrew Murray. And in his book, Abiding in Christ, he says this, at the root of all Christian life lies the thought that God is to do all and that our work is to give up and leave ourselves in his hands. In the confession of our utter helplessness and dependence, in the assured confidence that he will give us all we need. Yes, everything we ought to be and ought to have as branches on the vine will be given to us from above. I want to share with you one or two verses from a hymn that I can remember singing very, very often back in my college days at Bible College in the, in the, in the USA many, many years ago. I can't remember singing it much in the last many years. 
The story starts, in fact, with another Bible college student uh, many years before me, the wonderful uh, hymn writer Adelaide Allison Pollard. She attended the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, and she always believed that God intended for her to be a missionary in some far-flung part of the world. But in spite of her best efforts, she never was able to raise the required funds to be able to do that. And then one day in her 40th year, she says she really grappled with God and said, Lord, why can't I raise this money to be a missionary overseas? And she was really discouraged. And she attended a prayer meeting at her church one evening in, in 1902. And there was at that meeting one elderly lady who just prayed this. And this elderly lady prayed, Lord, it doesn't matter what you bring into our lives. Just have your way with us. Just have your way with us. And those words sank home. And Adelaide went home. And after the prayer meeting, she began to pen the words of the hymn, I'd like to share a few verses with you. She referred to the, the prophecy in, in Jeremiah where he talks about the, the father and, and, and uh, we are the clay, you are the potter and the work of your hand. And she wrote these lyrics. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will while I am watching Yielded and still. And the final verse goes like this. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Hold o'er my being absolute sway. Fill with thy spirit till all shall see Christ only always living in me. So the unavoidable question for each one of us this morning is, am I truly abiding in Christ? Or are we running around keeping busy, relying on our own strength and our own resources, racking our brains for ideas, worrying incessantly about what to do and where the next provision will come from? This is not abiding. This is living like a branch that is not attached to the vine. And in one of the most remarkable verses in all of Scripture, when you think about it, is verse 7. If you remain or abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given. Can you see why it's such a remarkable verse? You can ask God whatever you wish and it will be given. Can it possibly be true? Well, it must be true. That's what Jesus is saying. But of course, the you can have what you wish is only part of the verse. The first part of the verse is, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, then you can ask what you will and it will be given. So what's he saying to us as branches on the vine this morning? If we truly abide in the very center of God's will, if we rely entirely on him and relinquish our self-importance and our own ideas of independence, and moment by moment live in fellowship with him, and if his word, his word of instruction, of power, of comfort and guidance, is constantly at the forefront of our consciousness, then, and then only, can we ask what we will, and it will be granted. Why? 
because then there will be complete congruity between what he wants and what we want. Christ's words of condition and control will so infuse our minds that our prayers will increasingly conform to exactly what he wants from us and for us. So another question we kind of have to ask here is, are all our prayers being answered? If not, why not? Well, one of the reasons, and there may be several, but one of the reasons why our prayers are not answered the way we would expect them to be is that we're not abiding in the center of God's will. Somehow our branches become a bit disconnected. We must never cease to underestimate the power of prayer and the essential role that, that prayer play, plays in the, in, the, in the mission we've been talking about, the mission we've been entrusted with. We spoke a couple of Sundays ago about the assurance that we have, that we have this privilege of prayer. But prayer is not a magic formula which in itself just guarantees success. There is prayer and there is prayer, according to the Scriptures. Jesus acknowledges elsewhere in his teachings, Matthew chapter 6, that there is the possibility of what he sometimes calls vain repetitions. But when our hearts are truly set to conform to his will and open to his own yearning for the world, the potential of prayer, I believe, is limitless. In our day-to-day work amongst our colleagues and our friends, our discipleship, we as a church need to know what it is to advance on our knees. Put another way, to be a branch on the vine, to be truly a disciple does not mean that we just make any claim and expect it to produce whatever we want. We pray in Jesus' name. And that's not a formula, but it is a guarantee that in the name of Jesus, the prayers will be answered. Not the words, but it's Jesus who makes answered prayer possible. And centuries of Christian experience bear this out. So what about our prayer meetings? I'm going to be absolutely honest with you here, and some of you will want to take me up on it later. I attend very few formal prayer meetings. And I'll tell you why if you really, really want to know. But partly, and only partly, it's because one seems to hear a lot of Lord do this and Lord do that. A list of the things that the Lord we want the Lord to do, from healing Mrs. X to helping Mr. Y, from from blessing this part of the work to providing funds for this particular project. And that's all well and good. And in fact, the Bible says we have not because we ask not. And we must ask. But how many of our prayer meetings do we attend where folk are truly seeking first and foremost a closer and more intimate walk with God? Where folk are on their knees confessing their inadequacy where folk are asking God for nothing more than a desire to see his will done on earth as it is in heaven. What about our personal prayer time? Again, is it just sometimes a a list-driven attempt to get God to see to a bunch of outstanding matters? Is it God do this and God do that? As I say, there's nothing wrong with asking God for anything as long as we first ask him to draw close 
and that we draw close to him. And we ask him to prune away the dross, to empower us with his spirit, to cleanse us of all the rubbish that accumulates since our last prayer time. We need to get into the middle of God's will and be sensitive to the spirit in our lives through the confession of our sin. He goes on to say, my words need to remain in you. When my words remain in you, you shall ask what you will. This must surely have something to do with our relationship to our Bibles. Surely this has to, my words remain in you. You remain in my word and my words remain in you. Sometimes I, I must sound a little bit like a broken record, but are we taking this book seriously enough? Or is it grab it off the shelf every so often, Sunday and maybe Wednesday? Or do we look at it most days and read one or two verses and reflect on it for a while and then put it away? And that's good. But is it really, my words abide in you? Are you memorizing scripture? So the word can be in your heart and in your mind all day long when you don't have your Bible with you. What about committing personally to a pattern of real study of God's word? And not just the Wednesday night Bible study. My words need to abide in you. Not my words sitting on the shelf. Not my words lying in the depths of the memory of your phone. But my words abiding in you. So the final question, I guess, must be this. How can we know that we are actually abiding in Christ? How do we know that's actually happening? Is there a special feeling that accompanies this abiding in Christ? Well, there may be. I wouldn't rely on it. I believe there are clear evidences in the scriptures that will appear in our lives if we are truly abiding in him. And I believe these evidences are abundant and obvious. And I leave them with you this morning. I think the first evidence is, and I see this in this particular passage and in other passages as well, other passages, is that when you are abiding in Christ, when you are remaining, when you are abiding in Christ and his word is abiding in you, you will produce fruit. You will produce fruit. There's no fruit. Is there any abiding? Verse 2 says, he cuts off every branch that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Verse 4, no branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. As branches attached to the vine, we must bear fruit. But what does it mean by fruit? Well, the Bible talks about fruit in many ways, and I just mentioned two here. We've already mentioned in our prayer the fruit of the Spirit. These are behavioral traits. These are activities. These are attitudes and emotions that we demonstrate when we are attached to the vine. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, what are they? Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
If these are present in our lives and we see them growing, I think that's important, we see them growing year by year, to me that's a sign that we may well be abiding in Christ. The other use of fruit in the Bible is the, is the, the winning of other people to Christ. That's another way in which fruit is mentioned. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I am made all things to all men that by all means I might save some. And we all know the commission that Christ gave us to go and bear fruit, to baptize people across the nation, spread the gospel, preach the word. Spurgeon, the great uh, preacher, said this in one of his sermons. And I, if you have a chance to read some of Spurgeon's sermons, a great bit of reading for you. The business of the whole church, he says, is salvation. The minister is to use all means to save some. He is no minister of Christ if this, need, if this be not the one desire of his heart. Missionaries sink far below their level when they are content to civilize. Their first true object is to save. The same is true of the Sunday school teacher and all other workers among children. If they have merely taught the child to read, to repeat songs and so forth, they have not touched their true vocation. We must have the children saved. At this nail we must drive and the hammer must come down upon this head always, that we might by all means save some, for we have done nothing unless some are saved. So the first is to, to bear fruit. I believe the second indication that we are abiding in Christ is that we will experience from time to time the Father's pruning so that we will bear more fruit. He cuts off every branch that bears no fruit, and while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it'll be even more fruitful. I should imagine if we'd had that experience, and I certainly have, it's a painful, at very least uncomfortable procedure. But just as in horticulture, the act of pruning is essential to increased fruitfulness. And I believe God will deliberately and lovingly discipline and discomfort any believer that he seeks to make even more fruitful. So if the Lord is doing some pruning in your life right now, rejoice. It may be a real sign that you are where he wants you to be. The third indication that we are abiding in Christ is that I believe that we will see increased answer to our prayer. Some of you have had that experience in these last weeks. Hallelujah. If you ask anything in my name, it will be given. Fourthly, when you are abiding in Christ, you will experience a deeper love for your fellow Christians. When you are abiding in Christ, you will experience a deeper love for your fellow Christians. Look, in John 15 again, and just go a little bit further down. When you look from verse 10 right through to verse 25, that whole section is about this new intimacy that begins to grow when people together are abiding in Christ. I say that again. When people together are abiding in Christ, a whole new sense of intimacy begins to develop. They begin to put themselves Back, they, 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 they promote one another. He goes so far as to say that there's no greater love than this, 
then we lay down our lives for our friends. He goes on to say that this is how the world will know that you love me, and know that, 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 that you are a Christian, because you love one another. It's the great sign, the great mark of the Christian. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, he goes on to say. And finally, the fifth indication that we are abiding in Christ, I believe, is that you will experience greater joy. Verse 11 of chapter 15 says this, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So here we have five indications for the one who is abiding in Christ. Bearing fruit, both the fruit of the Spirit in our lives and the fruit of working with others to see them come to Christ. The fruit of experiencing God's pruning. The fruit of increased answers to our prayer. The fruit of a deeper love for one another. And the fruit of greater personal joy. So the question is, am I abiding in Christ this morning? The relationship of abiding is the natural state of a healthy branch. I'll say that again. The relationship of abiding is the natural state of a healthy branch. But it does need to be cultivated. It is natural, but it is not automatic. It demands daily worship, prayer, meditation in God's word, sacrifice, and service. And there really are no options other than this to the demands of of discipleship. None of us can follow Jesus on his or her own terms. The word disciple means that we are a student, a learner, an apprentice. And when we deign to bear that name, we start as babes, we mature, we grow towards adulthood, we err, we stumble. But at every step, we abide. And we take God's instruction. And we take God's discipline.